Thanks, Nina and Band. If we've not met, my name is Dan. I have the awesome privilege of uh, being one of the pastors here at Liberty Church, and I get to talk to you this morning. So won't you lend me your ear for the next 25, 30 minutes? Um, today, uh, you may or may not know that kind of the worldwide Christian calendar calls it Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, it's the first Sunday of Holy Week, which leads up to Easter. On next Sunday is Easter, when Jesus was, uh, we celebrate his resurrection. But on Palm Sunday is when uh, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And as he rides in, uh, people spontaneously worship him as the triumphal king. And they cut down palm branches, which is why it's called Palm Sunday, and they're waving these palm branches and kind of worship and praise like you might wave a flag, and they're putting them on the ground, and they're putting their coats as well down on the ground to kind of make a, a red carpet for Jesus to walk upon. They're recognizing Jesus as king on Palm Sunday. And the verses that we're, I'm going to be speaking from this morning, they actually occur on the Thursday um, which is the day before Good Friday. Now, on this Thursday, there is a meal. It's known as the Last Supper. If you are new to us, then for the last five, six weeks, we've been looking at all the meals that happen in the book of Luke. And actually, today, we get to find out what they eat in the meal. We'll talk about that shortly. But when I talk about the Last Supper, you probably have this image that comes to mind. It's uh, one of the most famous paintings um, uh, by Leonardo da Vinci, and he, uh, I didn't realize this, but when I researched it, he actually painted it in the dining hall, the refectory of a convent in Milan. So as you dine, the, the nuns could look up and they could see Jesus dining. Now, obviously, it's not actually a very accurate portrayal. You're going to hear shortly, as we've heard in many of the other meals, that Jesus was reclining at the table. And in da Vinci's picture, he's sitting at the table. Also, you've probably figured this one out as well, that they're all in one long line, which is a pretty abnormal way to have a very friendly meal. Usually, you face one another. And there are other inaccuracies as well. But he's, he's trying to portray the scene of Jesus and his disciples gathering for this important feast. Let me read the verses to you. So it's Luke 22, verse 7 to 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, where would you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him 
And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So I'm going to speak mostly from the meal, the verses that occur from 14 onwards. But I wanted us to get a, a bit of the context that this meal is a big deal. It's the Passover, an annual celebration for Jesus and his disciples. And this time it's exclusively for them. They're sitting in an upper room and they're eating lamb. That was the traditional uh, meal that they would have on Passover. And uh, what Jesus does is he takes this Passover celebration and he's beginning to add to it. He's beginning to say that the, the Passover was like a, a prototype and now it's being fulfilled in the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or breaking of bread or communion as it's known in different traditions. And the Passover meal was a celebration of, of emancipation and of liberation of the Jewish people being freed from Egypt from under Pharaoh's control. And Jesus, uh, well, we'll get to what he wants to show through the meal shortly. But this original freeing of the Jewish people occurs in Exodus 12. And uh, you might remember uh, Moses pleading on behalf of the Jewish people, and there are 10 plagues. And the last plague uh, is when the angel of death is going to go around every household and kill every firstborn child or cattle or animal. And these plagues, uh, firstly, Moses warned Pharaoh about everyone, and every plague is undermining what the Egyptians would have worshipped. So they would have worshipped the Nile, so it got turned into blood. They worshipped the sun, so they were subject to darkness. And kind of the ultimate thing Pharaoh worshipped was, well, he saw himself as a king. And so in this last plague, there is, God is, is bringing down Pharaoh's godness. It's a judgment upon him for oppressing the Jewish people. And so the Passover meal recalls when Moses was instructed by God to tell the Jewish people that they had to sacrifice this lamb and then they would take the blood of the lamb and they would wipe it on the doorposts and on the lintel. And in the Bible, blood is a, a symbol of life and of death. It, it's a substance that um, is it's kind of seen as sacred and it's used in sacrificial rites for purification, for consecration and for atonement. And, and that's what it's doing here in the Passover meal, that the blood is spread. And the result is that the angel of death sees the blood and it, and it sees the sacrifice and it passes over. And the Jewish people uh, are saved. 
and Pharaoh's heart is broken and is softened and he eventually lets them go so they can go free. They run into the desert and they come up to the Dead Sea and they're cornered there and then God parts that, but that is another story. So the Passover meal, even today, is an annual celebration um, that is a visible reminder of historical events and truths. And what Jesus is doing, he's setting up communion similarly. He's saying this is a visible reality of an invisible reality. The Passover is an annual celebration that Jesus uh, transforms. And uh, I want us to look at, I've got six very fast reasons why Jesus tells us to take communion, and then we're going to look at how. So the why is, number one, is, is given by Jesus. We, we read that in verses 19 and 20. He, he gave them this rite and this ritual. He only gives one other sacrament in the Bible, and that's that of uh, baptism. So we take these seriously. We do it as well. Jesus tells us in verse 19 to remember him, to bring him to mind, to bring thoughts about him into our present reality. Now, the other book in the Bible that talks a lot about communion is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians because they were doing it in all kinds of crazy ways and Paul's giving them quite a lot of instructions how to do it well. And one of the the reasons he gives as well as to why we should do communion is in 1 Corinthians 11:26, and it's to proclaim Jesus' death. Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this act of eating and drinking, it's like a, a dramatization, a dramatic display of the gospel and of what Jesus has, has accomplished for us through his death and his resurrection. Paul goes on to write as well that it's a participation in Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that the cup of blessing that we bless, he asks the question, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? So this is a participatory event that's pointing to Jesus' death and his resurrection. And it's in a visible, tangible, edible form that we get to participate. Fifthly, we get to take communion and we get to enjoy Jesus' presence. Now, some of you may have been taught that actually Jesus becomes the bread and the wine. Now, we don't believe that the Bible actually teaches that. We believe that it's, that Jesus is using these words symbolically, as if, uh, or on previous occasions, Jesus has said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the true vine. In another point, Jesus says, you know, I'm the bread of life, and he's not at those points saying that he's becoming those things, but it's, he's pointing to his characteristics and to his, uh, some of the, his accomplishments, as it were. So Jesus, though, when we encounter this, when we take the bread and we take the wine, we, we encounter him in our hearts. So it isn't just purely symbolism, but there's a bit of a mystery here. 
that we can enjoy a moment of dwelling with Jesus, that we expect his presence to be in the meal. Paul, I mentioned in the verse earlier, says that it's a cup of blessing. And so we expect our participation in it to result in spiritual growth, of, you know, spiritual growth in God. You know, it's a visible sign of an invisible reality. I think the New City Catechism says it very helpfully. And this catechism is a, is a modern one that's taken the old ones and kind of rewritten them, and it's a really helpful format. You can Google it. And they just ask lots of questions about basic spiritual truths throughout the Bible and give answers. And of the Lord's Supper, they write this. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. I love that expression of how it feeds and nourishes our souls, that we we expect a spiritual benefit when we get to participate in it. Six rapid reasons. Three notes on how we take it. Firstly, we take it as often as we can. In Acts 2.46, we read of the early church taking it daily, that daily they would break the bread in their homes together. And so we can take it in our homes uh, with fellow believers. Secondly, we take it together. We don't find any instances in Scripture um, where we get to take it on our own. And that's a bit of a problem today because we're under lockdown and we don't get to congregate. You know, it's called communion because it's a common unity. It's it's something we do in community with one another. But even though we can't take it, hopefully our hearts are beginning to hunger after Jesus. We're beginning to anticipate that, you know, as we anticipate his return one day, so we can anticipate our own return to, uh, to be with other believers, to worship together, to take this communion meal together. And the third point for how we take it is firstly, before taking it, we examine ourselves. And this is important to Paul to teach the Corinthians. He says, um, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So these are quite heavy, weighty words. And what he's saying is that when we approach the meal, when we're about to take it, we need to first examine our hearts. We need to consider, am I right with God? Have I made peace with God? Is is Jesus Christ the one I'm following? Paul also encourages us that we should consider, are we in right relationship with one another? And maybe um, we should go and put that right first. So if you're watching and you wouldn't say you're a Christ follower today, what is this to you? Well, I want to say that it's an invitation. It's an invitation from Jesus to come and sit at his table with him, to come and dine with him. We've looked for many weeks at the different meals where Jesus uh, invites everyone to come and dine with him, and it's the same today. 
And my sense is that actually today, maybe some of us need to make a decision that I want to dine with Jesus today, that I want to become a Christ follower today, that I want to take up that invitation to acknowledge Jesus as my Lord and my Savior today. What I want to do is unpack a little bit more about what Jesus is doing in that meal by looking at three symbols. So there's the lamb, there's the bread, and there's the wine. We read in verse 7 that the lamb is the Passover lamb. It's the meal they ate. We heard earlier that the first Passover lamb uh, was the lamb that was sacrificed, and it was blood. its blood was uh, spread on the doorposts. And that was the mechanism by which God was working to bring the Jewish people freedom. And, and this is kind of the big reveal. This is why Jesus has chosen this moment to institute the Lord's Supper, is he's saying, actually, I am a better Passover lamb. I'm a better Passover lamb. The Passover lamb brought freedom for the Jewish people from slavery to Pharaoh, and Jesus is the better sacrificial lamb that brings us all freedom from sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. And John, John the Baptist, you might have heard of him. He called it. He called it before this point. In one of his early meetings with Jesus, when they're both early on in their ministry in John 1, John the Baptist says this. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John saw it prophetically that Jesus was to be this Lamb of God, this sacrificial Lamb, and Paul highlights it as well in 1 Corinthians, and he he talks about, for Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. And you might ask, why did Jesus have to die? And it's because God is holy. It's because God is just. It's because we've each in our hearts actually rebelled from him. We want to live our own way. And the Bible's clear in the book of Romans. It says that the the wages of sin, because of our rebellion, is sin and we deserve to die. This is the consequence of our sin. I think, again, the New City Catechism helps us. It says that every sin is against the sovereignty, the holiness, and goodness of God, and against his righteous law, and God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. So Jesus is going to take our sins on the cross on Friday. We're going to remember that. Jesus is the one who received what should have been our punishment on the cross, each and every one of us. But because he was the perfect sacrifice, because he hadn't sinned, yet he took our sin, it means God's holy law was upheld and we can be free. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. There was a substitute. It, it's, not, it's different from a sacrifice. When I think of a sacrifice, I think of uh, me giving up something that's costly and important to me to try and appease something. 
actually here, our death was required. And Jesus steps in for us. We didn't offer Jesus, but Jesus offered himself willingly because a punishment had to be given. Uh, an author called uh, Patricia St. John, she tells this story of two twins. She calls it a life for a life. And these two twins are called Lewis and Sebastian. They're identical twins. They lived long ago, and they lived very different lives. Sebastian was an upstanding member of the community. He would work hard and diligently and had a quiet life. And Lewis was the rebel. He, was, he liked to drink. He liked to gamble. He liked to get into fights. And this one day, he comes home late and in a panic, and there's blood on his tunic because he's gotten into a fight and actually has ended up in, in the person dying. And so he's run in, and Sebastian is there asking him what's happened, and, he's, and, and Lewis knows that the justice mob is going to come and take him. The law they lived under was a life for a life. So Lewis says, you know, what, what can I do? What should I do? Sebastian says, you give me your blooded clothes and you take mine and run. Run for the hills and don't come back for a number of weeks. So Lewis does this. He's not thinking straight. He doesn't know what's going on, but he goes. And a few weeks later, he, he wants to come back because he wants to know what's happened. And he comes back and he discovers that his brother had given himself up to the mob and he'd been tried by the governor and found guilty of the murder. He'd said nothing and he'd been executed. And so Lewis, on hearing this, runs to the governor and says, you know, you've killed an innocent man. You must take me. Why, why would I want to live now with this hanging over me? The governor goes, and, and reflects on this and talks with the council and comes back and says, no, the law is clear, a life for a life. This debt has been paid. Go now. But he gives him a letter. Um, and the letter, you might have guessed, is from Sebastian. It reads this. My dear brother, this morning I shall die of my own free will in your blood-stained tunic. Now, I beseech you to live in my clean tunic. I send you my love, and God bless you, Sebastian. And Lewis gets it. He gets that the waster that he used to be is now dead and in prison in a blood-stained tunic, and now he must live a clean life, like the one who'd loved and suffered and sacrificed for him, his brother, must go on living. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He willingly sacrificed himself for us so that our sin-stained tunic, we can throw them off and we can have clean tunics again. You know, no other religion has God himself stepping in to make a way for us to, to be right with him again. In doing this, Jesus gives us himself. 
He's not giving us a, a set of rules. He's not giving us a political manifesto. He's not giving us an insurance policy or an escape plan. He's giving us himself. And like the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and eaten, Jesus says, you know, this is, this is my body broken for you, my blood poured out. He then says, eat of me. And this is mysterious. And we can't take communion through the lens today, but we can worship and we'll worship shortly. And uh, think about these truths. Think about these truths as we do it. But let's talk more about the other two symbols, the wine and the bread. We read about the wine in verse 19, and wine is a symbol of God's blessing because wine takes years to make. It takes years for the vine to grow, to get the right quantity and quality of grapes. And so it's a sign of, of peace, of God blessing the land. And wine is used in the Bible in celebrations. It's a special thing. And even today, the Passover meal has four glasses of wine. And Jesus actually, it says that the cup he took at the end of the meal, that would have been the third glass of wine celebrated in the Passover meal. And it's known as the cup of redemption, where they would have celebrated God redeeming his people back from Pharaoh. And so Jesus says, no, I'm redeeming everyone from sin. Jesus says the wine represents his blood of the new covenant. A covenant is a promise. And so Jesus' blood is, is representing that we're coming into a new kind of cosmic era. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about this in chapters 8 and 9. But it's, it's, there's a number of promises um, that point towards this, particularly in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll put it on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then Hebrews discusses this further. It says that the, the new law is now permanent and the old is now obsolete. The old covenant, to summarize it, was the promise that God gave them that if they behaved in the right way, if they kept his laws and statutes, then they could expect blessing. So it's about right behavior. The new covenant is about right belief. The old covenant had God's presence only in the temple. The new covenant has God's presence in every Christ follower. The old covenant had the laws written on tablets of stone and the, and the scrolls of parchment. The new covenant has God's law written on our hearts. So the old covenant is kind of external. The new covenant is internal. And actually in the communion meal, we, we take the external and we make it internal. By saying... His blood is the new covenant. Jesus is saying that he's going to live with us in brand new ways. We use this expression here a lot, that Jesus wants to dwell with us, that actually we can expect to experience his presence and we can expect to experience something of his guidance, 
that actually our conscience becomes sharper as the laws are written on our hearts. It's not an external list of do's and don'ts, but it's written on our hearts. And over the last couple of weeks, I can think of many different stresses that I've faced personally. Financial stresses, relational stresses, work stresses, family stress. And in those moments, I've just been reminded of Jesus wanting to give himself to me in those moments. So one financial stress, well, two. One was a, an unexpected bill, which was just way bigger than I'd anticipated. The other was, um, I guess, buyer's remorse, something I'd bought a while ago, and I just was having doubts that it was the right thing to buy. And, and just in both those moments, I sensed Jesus wanted to walk with me in it. And, and so I took a moment to kind of pray and invite him in and I felt him remind me that he's my provider. That although I may have made the wrong decision, that, that he can still provide for me in that. That though there might be an unexpected bill, he can still provide for me. And that gave me such peace, such joy and such hope. And we can all do this. Whatever stresses we're facing, we can invite Jesus in. We can expect him to change our, our heart state. And it's a bit like, a little bit like having a moral compass, but actually none of our moral compasses are calibrated right. None of them point to a true north. And actually, what good is a compass that doesn't quite point to a true north? And with the Holy Spirit, it gets more and more calibrated correctly. But we need to keep using the map of the Bible to help us truly calibrate it. So we can expect God's Spirit within us, God's indwelling in this new covenant to bring us his presence and to bring us guidance. The wine represents Jesus' blood poured out, willingly paid so we can have relationship with him again. He's giving us himself an act of complete vulnerability and intimacy, and that's what he wants us to give him. That's what he wants us to be with one another as well. In our community groups, and if you're not part of one, do join one. But one of the main objectives every time we meet is to dwell with Jesus, is to experience his presence, is to hold up the, the map of the Bible and, uh, and look at our internal Holy Spirit guidance as well and to dwell with Jesus. He can calm our hearts. He can bring us peace. He can remind us of love and he can release joy in us. So finally, the bread. And in the Bible, bread is a staple. It's a symbol, a symbol of kind of basic nourishment. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we heard of the, the meal which included bread and fish and fed 5,000 people. And Jesus, at the end of it, declares, I am the bread of life. And here, Jesus is saying when he breaks the bread that this is his body broken. He's the one who nourishes us through his broken body so that we can become, uh, we can have unity with God once again. Paul also teaches the Corinthians that it's about unity with one another too. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, he says, because there is one bread, 
We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so Paul's referring to the church as the body. Andrew Wilson says, furthermore, for Paul, communion is not just a memorial or a symbol. It acts. When we take communion, it acts. Andrew Wilson goes on, bringing the church together with Christ and with one another. So it's not just uh, an act that we all do at the same time, but actually when we're doing it, we're together declaring Christ's death and resurrection. We're proclaiming it. We're participating in it. We're all anticipating his return. We're all worshipping him and thanking him. And this is a deep, deep unity. And that's why we're to examine ourselves and in particular to make our relationships right. Now, during lockdown, it's easy to think, no, I can push any relational strife to one side because you're not seeing people. But I'd encourage you, if you know there's bitterness in your heart or unforgiveness you're withholding from someone, make it right. Make it right. And this is the point in my preach where I'd want to lead us as a church to take communion together as a gathered body. But because of lockdown, we can't do that. And actually, it pains my heart a little bit that we can't. Because I'm a bit tired of, of lockdown. I'm a bit tired that we can't gather. But we can choose to not tire of worshipping Jesus. We can still choose to have these symbols before us and dwell on them and think about them and worship Jesus as the, the substitutionary lamb, the better Passover lamb, the lamb whose blood was spilled for us so that we can experience this new covenant, this internal covenant of worship and of his presence and his guidance. We can still choose to think about the bread, the bread of unity, us to God and us to one another. And like John, we can see Jesus, we can recognize him for who he is, and we can declare, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's worship now. Thanks for listening.